I'm Dominic Nichols, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, and I speak to Francis Farrell, a journalist at the Kyiv Independent. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 26th of February, 2024. Two years and two days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Francis Farrell, a journalist with the Kyiv Independent, will be talking us through the news and views of a series of press conferences yesterday in the Ukrainian capital. I started with the latest military updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, folks. Welcome to Ukraine, the latest, a podcast and Twitter space on the war in Ukraine. My name is Dom Nichols. I'm a journalist here at the Telegraph newspaper in London. I'm here, but I think I've left my voice somewhere in Ukraine on the night train. So please bear with me. I'm joined today by Francis Farrell, a journalist with the Kyiv Independent, who will be giving us his views, news and reflections of the series of press conferences yesterday in the Ukrainian capital. But first, let's start with the latest military updates from Ukraine. Military have confirmed its retreat from the village of Lastachkina in eastern Ukraine. That's about two k's west of Avdivka. Military spokesman Dmitry Likovoy said on TV last night, Ukrainian armed forces units withdrew from the village in order to organise defences and prevent the enemy from advancing further in a western direction. I'm whizzing through, basically, because we've got a load of pre-recorded interviews this week, in fact, more than this week, after our visit to Ukraine, which is still ongoing for some members of the team, of which more later, but also because I think my voice is about to pile in. So I'll start talking about the, the press conference from yesterday, the series of press conferences with senior Ukrainian uh, officials. And off the bat, so President Zelensky, he said that Ukraine's counteroffensive plans were leaked to Russia last year. He was the kind of keynote, if you like, came at the end of the day. Francis was there. So was David Knowles, our very own littlest hobo. He was there in the press conference as well. He's actually busy right now. He's still in Ukraine out and about and with Adley, our producer, doing other bits and pieces, hence uh, asking uh, Francis for today. More later from his experiences of the conference. President Zelensky said the counteroffensive plans were on the Kremlin's table before the offensive began. And he said that several plans for a new offensive are now being drawn up just in case there are any more leaks. Now, other highlights from yesterday, you might be unsurprised to hear that the administration was trying to strike a hopeful note. President Zelensky was saying he was sure that Congress is going to approve the stalled $60 billion aid package. He said, if we can't count on the support of the United States, I'm not sure what world we are living in, which kind of sums up the mood really in the international arena. Rustin Amerov, Ukraine's defence secretary, he was at the conference for one of these sessions. He said half of all the Western military aid that's been pledged was delayed and Russia has gained territory as a result, which may well be why that to the villages west of Adika was had the Ukrainian forces withdrawn. Now, in the Q&A session at the end of the day, Mr. Zelensky also said four brigades, so each brigade being about, I know, two, three thousand people, depending on the role, 
but four brigades were unable to take part in the counteroffensive last year because the promised Western supplies didn't arrive in time. Um, we're hoping to speak to a, a Ukrainian brigade commander in the next few days, not necessarily one that, that didn't make it into the counteroffensive, but uh, be good to get a tactical view there. President Zelensky also said, very rare that you get numbers. He said 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed so far since, well, he said 31,000 soldiers killed Ukrainian soldiers. Didn't put a date on that. So we don't know if it's um, since 2014, the start of the war, or February 2, the start of the full-scale invasion. Um, and you could probably, ish, rough order of magnitude, multiply that by four for the wounded. So circa 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers killed and wounded over an indeterminate time period. But the number's the important thing there. He said Russia's lost 180,000 killed uh, and a total of 500,000 since I think that time period was the start of the full-scale invasion. So that may well be what we're looking at there. A huge number, obviously, within the context of the debate at the moment about mobilisation and what age people should be eligible for the draft which I think is coming down to 25 at the moment. I was speaking to a lot of folks out there a few days ago. Got back at midnight last night, which might be another reason why my voice is so rough today. But speaking to some guys who were 23 about their thoughts about what's going to happen when they're eligible for the draft in a couple of years' time. That will come out in the next few days. There's a couple of bits and pieces on the sort of diplomatic side. French President Emmanuel Macron is going to attempt to rally support for what he calls a battered and bruised Ukraine at a conference of European leaders in Paris today. The Elysee Palace meeting called at short notice after the what they're saying is the escalation in Russian aggression over the past few weeks and signals Mr Macron's eagerness to present himself as a European champion of Ukraine's cause amid the ongoing fears that obviously American support could wane. Now, I'm not sure how that quite sits with his earlier visits to Putin when he tried that line. He was criticised then, you may remember, for being what some people were calling a useful idiot. So on Twitter, he said, this is Mr. Macron, battered and bruised, but still standing. Ukraine is fighting for itself, for its ideals, for our Europe. Our commitment at its side will never waver. British Foreign Secretary David Cameron, he's going to attend this conference as well. And so will Olaf Schultz, German Chancellor, and about 20 other European leaders, Pedro Sanchez, the, the Spanish Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, the, Def uh, the Dutch PM and uh, current front runner for the next NATO Secretary General uh, job. And then just finally, before my voice piles in completely, interesting comments I noticed from Antonio Guterres, United Nations chief, opening today a UN Human Rights Council meeting in Geneva. He said the Security Council's lack of unity on Russia's invasion on, of Ukraine and on Israel's military operations in Gaza following the horrific terror attacks by Hamas on 7th of October has severely, perhaps fatally, undermined its authority. The Council, that's the Security Council, the Council needs serious reform to its composition and working methods. I think that's a very interesting statement by Mr Guterres. Regular listeners will know my view on the UN and the Security Council, uh, but I do think that's a, a good way to open the Human Rights Council in Geneva. I hope that there is a, a, a well, thought given to serious reform. It is exceptionally tricky uh, those comments were echoed recently by uh, Brazil's president, Lula da Silva. He said a few days ago, the right to veto must end and the members of the UN Security Council must be pacifist players and not actors who foment war. OK, forget the last bit, but he's calling about the right to veto, in which case, worth adding to the discussion, I would point you to comments by Patrick Porter, 
uh, professor of international security at the University of Birmingham. Good fellow. I've had him on the pod a few times. He said in response to those comments by Lula da Silva, he said, you can have the UN with veto players or no UN. That is basically, that's the system that was set up after the Second World War. I don't like the phrase, we are where we are, because it's used by a lot of people to skate over how you got there and what you need to do about it. But as long as, in this case, if you're acknowledging how we got here, it is a, a valid comment, I think. So, yeah, we are where we are with the UN Security Council. The veto is there. And if you take away the veto, you'll probably collapse the whole thing because people just don't, just won't, won't join in. So... Where do we go from here? That that seems to be where we are in a nutshell. Any ideas from any listeners about how we move on to something better for the world? Then please let us know. We will discuss it on the pod. David can't join us today because he's out and about interviewing, but he did leave a voice note yesterday, a hot take straight after the press conference. So before we go to Francis Farrell, let's hear from our own David Knowles, who was at the conference. So we've come to the end of President Zelensky's press conference. It was a bit of a marathon, nearly two hours. He took questions from media from all around the world. We had questions from Japan, from Italy, from the US, from the UK. They covered an awfully large number of subjects this evening. It was really fascinating watching Zelensky in full flow. You can really see how effective a political operator he is. On some questions, he joked with the journalists. He did quite a lot of trying to break things down into specific examples. I mean, for example, he talks about... The failure of last year's counteroffensive, when he said that one of the things that went wrong was, he said they had four brigades, like a fist, that was the word he used, a fist, the implication being that these were brigades about to be used in the counteroffensive. But he said that they never received the equipment that was promised to them, and they just had to sit and wait. And he said he wasn't saying that because he wanted to blame anybody, but because to, to explain that this is the kind of thing that's going wrong. He also said that the elections in the United States uh, in November are going to be a turning point. One of his more moving answers was when he just looked at the last couple of years and said that the that year one, the first year of the full-scale invasion, was a year of survival, that year two was a year of resilience, and that this year, the year we're starting in this war, is potentially the turning year where... Whatever happens this year in regards to supplies to Ukraine, in regards to plans on the front line, that will define how the conflict may end, how the war may end. So final thoughts here from Kiev. Zelensky looked tired. He still looked like he had a lot of energy in him. He was able to answer really any of the questions coming from any of the international gen- journalists with fluency and dedication and passion. It's easy to see now when we were sitting just a few metres from him just why he commands uh, such respect amongst the international community, how good a communicator he is. And he was funny. He cracked jokes. There were moments when we were talking about more emotional subjects, the death of soldiers. He gave the number, 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed on the full-scale invasion. I'm not sure if that's a new thing that we've not heard before, but it was, a, it was interesting that the president said it, and you could see him creasing up with pain and anguish as he said it. And then five minutes later, he's sharing a joke with a journalist or teasing them about their sources or, or their numbers. So it was a vintage Zelensky performance here in Kiev. We're into year three of the full-scale invasion. There are many questions about what's ahead, about whether Ukraine has enough support and supplies from the West to survive and sustain and counter the Russians and maybe go on the offensive again. But their president seemed in fine form this evening. It's David Knowles for The Telegraph from Kiev. Francis Farrell, a journalist at the Kiev Independent. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Back to the pod. Been here a few times. Delighted to hear from you. Lovely to meet you last week. Thank you for showing us around your, around your offices. 
Uh, lovely to meet some of the, the staff members that we were able to. But Francis, you were at the press conference yesterday. I'm keen to talk to you about President Zelensky's comments on the 31,000 Ukrainians dead, 180,000 Russian dead. Also keen to talk to you, Andre Yermak, chap running President Zelensky's office. He said Ukraine could invite Russia to a global peace summit in the future. The EU are about to start sending the four and a half billion euros to Ukraine, the first payment under a new aid programme. So there's lots to talk about. But could I start, please, by asking you, what was your what do you think the general mood was at the conference and in Ukraine generally at the moment? Uh, yeah. Uh, good day, Dominic. Thanks for the introduction. And likewise, it was, it was great to have you guys in the office last week. Yeah. Overall thoughts about the conference. Well, for me, I, I guess the big comparison was Zelensky's press conference in December last year. So that was a similar, very similar kind of two hour marathon event where you had heaps of questions from Ukrainian and foreign media, some questions coming up. I think twice it was some kind of Western journalists trying to jump on him with the question, President Zelensky, are you losing this war? Is it time to do a deal? Uh, And so on and so on. I think with the press conference itself, with the president, um, it was a little bit more relaxed than the December one because the December one was the first in many months. I don't even remember when he had a similar thing before. And there were the Zelensky's illusionary tension was at its peak. And, and it was just around that moment of time when we switched into this new understanding of reality, which kind of uh, arrived over this last winter, which is, okay, let's be honest now, the counteroffensive kind of failed. And in fact, now it's Russia attacking and the USAID was already blocked by then. And so now having had that big confrontational moment at the last press conference, I think now it was more relaxed and more just getting on with business in this dialogue with the world's press and just discussing where we do really stand now rather than having to have this train crash with reality that we had last time. So that was good in a way, I guess. I mean, many of the questions themselves were still similar and the answers were still quite similar, as was my personal question to him, again, about fortifications. And very similarly to last time we had a he avoided the bulk of the question and mentioned how strong they were. The fortifications were in Kharkiv Oblast, which I found kind of darkly hilarious. But the rest of the conference was, I mean, it was it was a marathon. It was all of the top people in the military and the ministries, apart from Sirsky himself. It was his deputy there. And it just was one panel, all-star panel after another. And it was very rushed. It was very quick. And I think it was almost deliberately done in a way where they definitely focused more on, on positives. So each speaker had a quick PowerPoint. Usually it was a PowerPoint. Sometimes it was a video about all their achievements over the last year or so. And whenever there was a chance to talk about drones and how many drones they were making and flying and using, they did that. So Kamishin, the Minister of Strategic Industries, Umerov, Fedorov, the Digital Transformation Minister, they were all there and they each took their turn talking about drones. 
and there were very there was very little time to ask them any questions. It was just at the end of each panel, maybe two or three. I didn't get a chance. Some of them could be caught after the panel in the corridor. I was surprised that Budanov was quite happy to to let himself just be absolutely. This is the defense intelligence chief who you yourself interviewed. He was quite happy to let himself be completely mobbed by the press, including me with my little phone. And um, and he was actually asking, answering every question to the point where people were too slow to, to come up with new ones. So that was interesting, my first experience with him. I guess we can share notes on that. But... Yeah, overall, overall, again, the atmosphere was one that was more in, in touch with reality. And that reality remains the fact that Ukraine's fate over the next year and even over the next few months depends so much on this US aid package that's just hanging over. And then it's about doing everything as competently as possible and working with the Europeans as pos- as much as possible. And there was this talk of the defense ministry audit, uh, which I think we're all going to look into more now to do the best Ukraine can with what is in its hands. But yeah, we're all just waiting on Congress. Can I ask, because you were, you were very lucky, you, you did well, you got a question with President Zelensky, David Knowles, I think he nearly lost the blood to his arm because he had it aloft for bloody hours trying to get a question in. But you asked about fortifications, and we spoke about this last week, I'm really, really interested in this area, it's often overlooked, it's not talked of a, a huge amount, but when Russia pulled back over the Dnipro down south in Hezon region, they did so because, well partly for, because they've gone back behind what's been termed the Sorovkin line, General Sorovkin Where's Wally? Haven't seen him for a few months, have we? Anyway, that's a topic for another day. Where is General Sorovkin? But the huge fortifications that that made the counteroffensive so, so difficult. Russia put a lot of effort into that, including, we are told, you may know more than me, but we are told for civilian labour and civilians from the Russian-occupied areas, Donetsk, Luhansk. But they put a lot of engineering effort into it and created a very formidable engineering obstacle as you would as you would hope professional engineers would do if they're on your side now there doesn't seem to be something of similar construct from ukraine now that might be a number of people i spoke to last week uniformed personnel told me that there's a kind of old soviet mindset that says if you did or let me go backstage in the western military and certainly the british army i was in if you go static for any length of time depending on what role you're in. If you're infantry, it's any a few minutes. If you're in tanks, it's a few hours. But if you go static, you dig. You get under the ground. You dig a, a, a small shell scrape so that you can lie down and hopefully not be hit by artillery splinters. If you're there for any longer, you dig a big trench to get under the ground. That doesn't seem to be the case in the old Soviet mindset where digging was almost seen as as passively accepting that, all oh, right, we're not going forward anymore. We're going to stay here and fight and let them fall upon us. Whereas in the West, we view digging and getting underground and forming a very formidable defensive line as the precursor against which you can launch a, a force into battle. So we see it as a as just part of a very offensive mindset. So can you talk us through your question to President Zelensky about the fortifications, what you were trying to get out of him and, and what he how he answered it, please? 
Yeah, so just <laughs> firstly on the topic of David, I was joking to him yesterday evening and saying that if I'd thought of it, I would have gone up and introduced him to Zelensky's press secretary and said, this guy deserves a question more than anyone else here <clears throat> for the amount of time and hours he spent in, into Ukraine of, of any Western journalist, basically. But yeah, about fortifications. Well, I mean, you talked about the Surovikin line and... And I guess, yeah, it's about this question of digging and the decision being made to to dig. And there's a big, I, I mean, there is Soviet doctrine which describes uh, how to dig and how to organize a, a proper defense in depth if the strategic decision is to defend. And that's what they did very successfully. And of course, the Russians have their advantages here when it comes to yeah, something like forced labor and just this power vertical of decision-making and resource allocation, which allows them to just get the job done. But that in itself isn't an excuse for Ukraine, at least not trying to do the same thing as much as possible because it's Ukraine's survival at stake. But what uh, I guess was ignored was the strategic decision to defend that was that should have been made even before the counteroffensive started, understanding that there's a contingency here in which it doesn't go well and the Russians retake the initiative. And then we reach this point where we are now, where Ukraine is clearly in a strategic defensive stance and in this brutal positional war of attrition, the most important thing is for that equation of attrition to go as much in your favor as possible. And in that way, it's almost, I mean, it should already be in Ukraine's favor because Ukraine is on the defensive and it's Russia who wants to attack and is ready to throw men and, and equipment at these lines. But it's a huge difference. As you say, if an infantryman is defending or a platoon, for example, is defending in little shallow trenches that they've just dug out themselves or if they're defending where they can't really sleep properly they're much more vulnerable to artillery and drones compared to a proper concrete reinforced with deep dugouts well planned out trench system with minefields in front of it and, and all kinds of other things which is exactly what worked for the russians so i asked that question already in December, and now I tried to ask a, a more advanced version of the question. I, I tried to draw on the heartstrings a bit, I guess, and said that, listen, more and more Ukrainian soldiers are saying that those prepared rear fortified lines, second lines of defense, which should A, stop Russian advances, B, in doing so, protect their lives and protect them from reduce their own casualties and see maximize enemy casualties these lines are not there and that you do read that on ukraine soldier ukrainian soldiers social media they're talking about it more and more i've heard it from many of them and what is the explanation for that what's happening whose job is it to do this and will we see large strategic multiple lines of defense along the active front line like Russia did because sometimes recently now that the fortification topic has become more fashionable occasionally you see the Ukrainian military post some nice photos and videos of serious fortifications being dug with concrete big bunkers dragon's teeth so on but 
then you look at the details and it turns out that's on the northern border with with Belarus or, or with Russia where there's no actually active fighting going on. So his answer was this is part of what's going to go into the defense ministry audit and apart from that it's their job. Last time he said it was the job of the local regional administrations. Now it's apparently the defense ministry's job. At least there's a more clear answer now. And that was about that. Once again, he said that, yeah, the audit will find weak points. But by the way, I'm very impressed with the fortifications in Kupiansk, Kharkiv area, which is exactly what he said in December. He's a really big fan of the fortifications there. But yeah, a bit of a bizarre answer yet again unfortunately. But of course, there's a huge other dilemma here, which is that if Ukraine were to build Beacon Line style fortifications, they need to be built about 10 kilometers back from the front line, because you get any closer, you're in constant artillery range. And they need to be built with civilian manpower. And then but if you do build those, which Ukraine should, then the, the dilemma arises, of whether you continue to try and defend the frontline positions or do you re retreat to those fortified lines, but retreating could leave a lot more territory in the hands of, of the Russians. So it's a tricky one, but the problem is that we're not seeing action. And yeah, the answer, I wasn't super happy with it, to be honest. No, I mean, it is a tricky one, of course, is if you're trying to build this stuff whilst in contact with the enemy, you know, as you say, you, you either put it right back so they are relatively safe, the engineering effort, but you don't particularly want to do that and give up uh, more ground. Um, but if you do it fairly close, then you've got to protect those um, those forces doing that. So it, it is a big a big problem, but you can't ignore it and you need to have a position. And I'm just I'm a little surprised that there wasn't greater sort of strategic messaging from President Zelensky. That, as you say, they're raising the level of responsibility from the local administrations to the defence ministry. But if you need to start getting people ready for this, if, especially if you're going to lean on the civilian industry side of it if, to do some of this engineering work, then you need to start the narrative that this is absolutely vital and it doesn't in any way mean that you're going backwards or it doesn't mean that you're accepting the line where it is. This is the, the, the almost like the mortar base plate from which you're going to start launching bombs at the enemy. I'll just add that they're very open about the strategic plan is to maximise enemy losses and minimise one's own. And so that, that's the most no-brainer thing to start doing. If you are also openly admitting that you're going to be in a defensive stance strategically for, for probably the whole year. Yeah, and of course, you can, you can put a huge amount of effort and get it badly wrong. Think of the Maginot line. So you've got to be careful on this. It's not an easy question. I'm not looking for easy answers, but it is a very worthwhile area of debate, which is why clever journalists like you ask those questions. But moving on, what do you think of President Zelensky's comments about 31,000 Ukrainians dead? As I said, I don't know over what time period he's talking, and I've suggested you could multiply that by four to get the injuries as well. We, I think we have come to the opinion that Ukrainian comments about their own dead and wounded and losses don't seem to be a million miles away from the truth. They seem to be a bit more reliable than, well, certainly a lot more reliable than Russia's comments about theirs. And more reliable than we, I think, in the first few months of the war than they were given credit for. So if he's saying 31, I don't know, what, what would you do? Add, add 10 or 15% or so that. But, but if you're in that kind of figure, do you recognise that kind of figure? And, and why do you think he mentioned it? 
Yeah, I, I would be less inclined to, to go with a 10, 10 or 15% margin of error. First of all, it's worth remembering that both sides generally have this pretty rock solid policy of not disclosing these figures. So it's really the prerogative of the president if he decides like, okay, now it's the moment. I don't know if this was planned, by the way, for this. It was a a, a state TV channel who asked the question, so it could have been planned or he could have decided just in the moment, that's it, I want a headline here. I'm not sure, but when he, as soon as he said that number, everyone were, was on their phones beeping away that number to their editors because it, it, it really is a, a rarity. I don't even remember the last time that was discussed. But here the elephant in the room is the so-called figure of the missing because unfortunately the Ukrainian army is still a very bureaucratic one. I don't know how it works in Western militaries, maybe you could tell me, but here very often if there's not not only confirmation like a body or or something else that goes through the whole bureaucratic system goes through all the paperwork and it's confirmed kia then the soldiers automatically receive the missing status um, i think in ukrainian the literal translation is is missing without news, like without knowing what happened to them. And we just know that it's a high number. It's very hard to say if we're talking, it could be even almost double. Uh, it could be about 50% of the confirmed killed, potentially a bit less. But I think the general consensus of the people I talk to and speaking to commanders and soldiers about what happened in their unit in, in intense periods of battle. Of course, that's anecdotal evidence, but I think in the discussions I had afterwards, it was like, okay, that's a pretty small number and it's probably not quite on, yeah, not quite true, I guess. We don't know for sure. And I guess it's this, this category of missing people that allows the truth to be kind of bent. But Zelensky did acknowledge that. That was just the confirmed. And he actually mentioned this missing without news category that doesn't count. And he said he's not going to announce the, the number of wounded because that would tell the Russians how many soldiers the Ukraine has have left the battlefield, basically. But yeah, I wouldn't say 10, 15. I, I wouldn't say double, but somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, no, I don't think we're ever going to really, really know. But I mean, interesting that he, that he raises it, that he puts himself up there for uh, four questions. Now then, I mean, we know that President Zelensky is keen for a reset right now. You know, General Zeluzny was moved to the side. Quite where he's going to go, we we don't know. Maybe a well, will be a conversation for another day. But I've posited Dom's theory. I reckon General Zeluzny is going to be asked to build the army that General Sersky then fires into battle. But that's just my that's just my view. But we know President Zelensky is keen for a reset, a bit of a shake-up at the top, a change in, in personnel, change in comms and what have you. Yesterday, did you see any new faces or hear of any new policies that you might have, might have betrayed to the public and to the world for the first time as part of this sort of diplomatic, military, informational revamp? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the big new face at the first, and he was on the first panel, which, again, as I said, was very rushed and, and didn't really allow for for many questions at all, was, I think, Vadim is his name, Vadim Sukarevsky. 
correct me if I'm wrong, who is one of the, he was formerly a brigade commander of the, ninth, of the 59th Motorized Brigade. So that was one of the ones actually fighting near Avdivka, but more on the southern flank uh, of the city. And uh, he became the deputy commander-in-chief and also the main guy, as far as I understand, in charge of drones. I don't know. He's not going to be the commander of the drone forces, which is still yet to be announced. But that's his like area of focus as one of the deputy commanders in chief. But again, it seemed like a bit of a prepared presentation about, okay, this is the new face and I'm going to talk all about drones because drones are great. We, we can talk about Ukrainian innovation, which is always impressive, which is genuinely impressive. Ukrainian military tech industry and in general, this new path in which, I mean, it's, it's very kind of slick PR language in which it's a it's a war of technology and where where technology will fight more instead of humans. So there's that idea and he was presenting it, but he has a good reputation as a brigade commander. So I have no reason to doubt his competence, but it would have just been good to give journalists a bit more time to to pick his brain. And yeah, I mean that that was the theme of this whole new angle. Of course, there there are a lot of things to criticize about it. There's his old reputation and the fact that something that he was criticized about in Bakhmut, not withdrawing soon enough and not valuing the lives of his men as much as he should, was almost repeated in, in Avdivka. But again, it's hard to say who makes all these decisions. An interesting topic that came up was with Kamishin, the strategic industries minister, who was also, of course, talking a lot about drones. And someone asked him, if uh, drones could replace artillery eventually. It's been a, more and more of a debate recently, uh, something I wrote about last week. And he said that, no, they don't see it that way. They still see the need to be receiving many, many shells in the future and trying to make as many of, as they can in Ukraine. But he did say an interesting thing, which was that now at this point when they come up with new drone models to finance and build at scale, they are being classified in their artillery equivalent. So you've got mortar drones, mortar FPVs, different caliber, 60 mil mortar FPV equivalent, uh, 120 millimeter mortar FPV equivalent, and small howitzers, and, and so on and so on. So yeah, that's the kind of qualitative uh, shakeup. And of course, there is this big audit, which will learn more about in the next few weeks. But I think, again, everyone is in no illusions about the fact that they just need these shells to come from the US because otherwise it's pretty difficult to talk about new directions of any sort when Ukraine is in this desperate state where there's, the Russians are advancing and there's not enough to shoot them with. Yeah, I think, I mean, never is a, a very long time. It's difficult to say, yeah, will artillery ever be replaced by drones or can drones never do the same as artillery because it's obviously all evolving at the same time and on numbers Peter thank you very much you're right yeah a lot of the general rule is half the number 
uh, of the casualties that people say the enemy have had and double ones that you say your own have but it's very difficult to get any view on this i was keen to i i, I touched briefly when i when i uh, had the pleasure of staring into general badonov's eyes for about 40 minutes to talk about the unmanned systems force this new drone force if you like and if this was the technological innovation that general zaluzny was saying they need to need to take a leap just incrementally moving up and developing stuff is is good but they need ukraine needs a big technological leap to get ahead of russia and i think the the unmanned systems force is going to be part of that i was trying to get out of him whether or not that force is just going to be for want of a better idea a big warehouse full of drones and they just sign them out to people who use them or if it's going to be a strike asset in its own right and they'll be task organized for certain roles and missions and then they will go out and they will bolt onto units or maybe have other elements attached to them and there'll be a, a strike capacity as well as a, if you like a just a kind of logistic and defense industrial capacity but i didn't really didn't really get a, a firm view on that. I don't think there is a firm view at the moment. I don't think Ukraine knows what, what they really want from this thing. Or I suppose until the, the review's done and, and Commission come up with this plan for strategic industries, we won't know. But just finally, uh, Francis, any comments on Andre Yermak's suggestion about this, um, that, that Ukraine could invite Russia to a global peace summit sometime in the future? Is this just showing a bit of ankle or is there actually more to it than that? Uh, yeah, so Yermak was on a panel where we had the former NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen come in uh, via Zoom or some other system on the big screen. And they, so his focus has been together with Rasmussen and, and with diplomats to, to all over the world to organize these Ukraine peace formula meetings there's one in Jeddah, one in Switzerland, or one in Malta. I think the next one's going to be in Switzerland. And he was saying that it's going to be on the level of national leaders. And so that's been part of Ukraine's diplomatic policy for a while, to organize these Ukraine formula meetings with the aim of bringing the global south, the kind of, I don't know, the 21st century's non-aligned countries, I guess you could say, into a kind of mental position where they are willing to basically look at the idea of peace in Ukraine as one in which it more or less, not necessarily every single point, because that all the stuff about oh, must have war crimes tribunals, we must have reparations, not necessarily all those points, but at least the core aspects including respect for the UN charter, respect for sovereignty and all the stuff about food security is also really something that is important to them and that's all about getting the global south on board these countries where ordinarily perhaps they would be more likely to just hold the position of we just want you guys to have peace and get the grain flowing again and otherwise we'll trade with anyone we'll buy oil and gas from anyone we'll sell shells to anyone and, and so on and then i think so it was very clear i mean that comment made headlines but it was very clear that at first the job is to bring more and more countries into ukraine's idea of this peace formula and then that's a point where russia could be contacted i guess but of course russia wouldn't want that. Russia wants the opposite. And I think in a different comment to a different question, Zelensky was the one who said, what, what's the point of, of negotiating with someone who's blind or deaf or just doesn't take 
their word doesn't mean anything. Like none of that has changed. None of that paradigm. None of the reason why just the idea of Ukraine suing for peace's sake now makes no sense when it's all about the balance of power and the way things are going behind that concept of peace. Because if it's clearly Russia who's got the upper hand and it's in their hand for them, it's in their kind of court for them to move forward not or take a break and then invade again later, one or the other, it's not something that's worth talking about now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Earlier, David Knowles met with reporter Alexander Krebet from the Kyiv Independent to discuss his work reporting on the occupied territories, including the 10-year anniversary of his own escape working undercover in Donetsk. Alexander, thank you for coming back and talking to us again. We wanted to speak about your work reporting on the occupied territories. So maybe just tell our listeners a little bit more about your own background. Where are you from and how do you report on that place? I'm originally from Donetsk. It's the city actually founded by the Welsh guy. Uh, John Hughes. Yeah, John Hughes, Hughes, exactly, exactly, yeah. And it's a kind of former British colony, so to say. So I was born and grew up there, studying university with a year abroad. So when I fled the city in 2014, after spending two months under Russian occupation, but it was a mild occupation, not that hard as it is right now. I was basically only the armed people on the streets, sometimes even armed kids on the streets, which is horrible and awful. So I did some undercover reports over there. So I spent five days inside regional administration building, which was captured. So we were calling those people pro-Russian separatists at the moment, but we now know that some of those people who assassinated, for example, Mr. Skripal and his daughter with a Novichok nerve agent in, in Salisbury, they were there at the moment coordinating the Russian attempts to overthrow the constitutional order in two eastern regions, which is Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. Donetsk is the major city of Donbass, which comprises two easternmost regions, and is still the major Ukrainian city which is under Russian control. Even when Russia got uh, captured the Kherson, Kherson is like four times smaller than Donetsk. Donetsk is a huge city. It was really highly developing before the first Russian invasion in 2014. So I was reporting undercover, pretending I'm one of those supporters, so to say, from the locals. I was impersonating myself as I'm a guy from Amvrosivka. It's a small town in Donetsk region next to the Russian border. 
so I came filming with a hidden camera over there, talking to people, secretly filming them. I had a camera look like, a, I don't know how to say, a key on for your car. A fob. Okay, you can open your car. With yeah, 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 with this thing. And I made a report on, on that. So, but, so they spotted me because I was... I wasn't so smart, so I was much younger, 10, 10 years younger. And, uh, um, I was tweeting from the building, from the inside building, like with every single minute. For example, I was saying like uh, 11, 13 p.m. That happening, 7.55 uh, a.m., that, that and that happening. Mm, and I saw they are uh, searching for somebody. And when they came, approached me in the original council hall. It was the only place with the Wi-Fi at the moment over there. They asked me, what am I doing there? Because like people basically sleeping there and resting uh, after the long day of doing the barricades or whatever they were told to do. I told them that I'm mm, texting with my girlfriend and I asked them like to look at my phone if you want to. I was shaking inside and so scary. But I didn't show it with my face. My hands didn't shake at all. But I was like, ooh, it, it, it was one of the strangest moments of my life, actually. So they were all three wearing the same uniforms. But to distinguish them, I saw their boots. So in one of those boots, the black uh, moccasins with uh, four white stripes on them started to follow me everywhere afterwards. So I was, I made... A phone call, like I was pretending that I'm talking to a guy who I want to get into the building. And I was like talking loudly. So this guy who is following me is hearing that. And I said, like, yeah, 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 my friend, I will just meet you over there. So it took a circle around. The, it's, it's a big building in downtown Donetsk. And I came back seeing the same shoes waiting for me at the entrance. I get into the toilet, like, was thinking what to do. I tried to escape from the window, but they put the, the nails in that. And I left, again, pretending I'm going for another person. And I left and never came back over there. Several weeks later, I took one of the last trains from Donetsk to Lviv in Western Ukraine. And I never came back. So it's, it's almost 10 years I haven't been at home. What do you think would have happened if they had have caught you? Mm, several scenarios. So the best scenario, they would just detain me for several days, beat probably, definitely, and then they will just release me or expel me, whatever they want to do. But because before that and after that, people uh, and pro-Ukrainian people were already killed at some of the rallies. So one of the last rallies were attacked brutally. Yeah. So the worst scenario, they will just kill me. Let's fast forward to today then. What do we know about life in occupied Donetsk? Can you give us a sense? Obviously, we can't portray who you speak to, but from the people you talk to, what happens on the ground? A lot of things happen on the ground, really. So it's a daily life for the people, but it's a big open-air gulag camp where the people struggle with almost everything. Uh, Donetsk is a major, is a big city, is a major Russian stronghold in Ukraine. And also Crimea, of course, but Crimea is a, a bit different story in terms of occupation and Russian approach to these territories. Donetsk is, struggles with sometimes no power, no phone connection. It's, it's constant problems. 
with the running water. So the people are melting the snow to drink. They are at the basements of apartment buildings. They open the cranes and they get the technical water to flush their toilets because they don't have other options to do so with the sometimes water is running in their taps for an hour maybe for some time for one day but then it disappears for weeks sometimes for months in smaller cities and villages it's been like the constant problem so without no running water at all for years Donetsk is and the part of the region has been under Russian occupation almost for 10 years so can we pause there for a second why why are the facilities like water why is it so bad what are the occupational authorities not doing or, or doing firstly Just a week before full-scale invasion, Russia started the conscription campaign, a forced conscription campaign, meaning that the people walking on the streets, working at their offices, studying at their classrooms at the universities or lower-level educational institutions and facilities, being grabbed, put it on the bus and sent to the enlistment office, signed the papers, get the uniforms and the weapons and sent straight to the front line, sometimes after short and irrelevant trainings a week after, for example. They've been sent to the very, very hottest spots. For example, I did multiple reports uh, talking to those people who managed to escape that conscription, forced conscription campaign. And I talked to some of the people who didn't manage to escape and who were sent to fight against their own country. For example, storming the Mariupol at the very first stage of uh, full-scale invasion. Some of the people, they haven't been outside of their apartments or apartments of their grandparents or their friends where they were hiding from that conscription force conscription campaign some of those people haven't been outside for 16 17 18 months sometimes and most of those people they needed to bribe the local drivers who has the connections the border between occupied ukraine and mainland russia to escape the territory but without any guarantees because the the deal is you pay if you're going alone without a car you pay uh, 60,000 Russian rubles which is uh, at the moment back then approximately a thousand euro I don't know how much it is in in pounds so the deal is they get you at your doorstep they drive you through all the checkpoints where you can be grabbed, stopped and grabbed and sent to the front line. But they drive you only to the border crossing, which is still under Russian control, but the separate branch of the FSB, uh, Russian Security Service, uh, which is in charge of the borders in Russia. So after they drove you there, you're on your own, talking to the border guards from both sides. So you do the all the stuff and the... Um, People who, especially those who didn't have a passport, Russian passport or the Russian proxy documents, they were interrogated, IMAs from their phones being traced. They needed to go through the humiliating procedures like being naked in front of the different people and people they don't know. So they've been interrogated, asked like bullshit questions. But most of them, they managed to 
cross the border into Russia because it's the only way you, where you can get from the occupied territories since the COVID started, COVID pandemic started. So when these people needed to go through all the Russia to the Baltic states, basically, to Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia, cross the border there, and then they are free. And back into the humanitarian problems and the municipal services problems because of this forced conscription campaign, those essential services were left without any people who can maintain all of those facilities. And that's why a mild problem like it was just before the New Year's in December last year, the icy rain was for a couple of days over there. It's a regular situation for the for this time of the year. And every tree and every uh, wire on the um, power lines were covered with the small layer of ice so it eventually broke in in, in some places because of the wind or because of something else or because of their um, weight of the ice yeah it was nobody come to help to repair those things so when the people faced weeks sometimes months without electricity meaning without phone connection meaning without the internet connection so basically they were cut it from the information they also cut it from the old information they can get online for example because multiple websites are banned and all the russian internet providers are working there and only they can provide the internet to the locals so because of the forced conscription campaign those essential services still face huge problems so i i do contact to the people over there i do surf the local chats groups publications propaganda news forums everything and i talk to people of course over there to double check it of course because you know they do a lot of propaganda but sometimes in those pieces of propaganda you can find uh, what you need but you need to double check it definitely what kind of level of support for the occupational authorities do you detect is there any you detect or is it or do people there's like it but they keep it to themselves or what do you find there's no data on data on that it's in such circumstances people are living there it's impossible to conduct a like a fair survey definitely because people wouldn't be honest if they do not support the occupation but they cannot voice it when somebody is asking especially somebody who they don't know but every single ukrainian strike behind the enemy lines in the russian occupied territories of ukraine was is and will be coordinated through the people who are on the ground because they are the eyes of the Ukrainian military. They can track the Russian military equipment movements, they can geolocate the bases, they can check everything who is coming in and coming out, what is bringing in and bringing out, and they report this information for free without even thank you word to them they report this information to the ukrainian military and we see those strikes it's not only me saying that's every single one is the military intelligence saying that out loud or publicly uh, and i did it was a, actually my first report for the kiev independent it was a story about the covert operation to strike 
a big base of the elite Wagner forces in the city of Kadivka in Luhansk Oblast. It's like it was at the moment like something like 50 kilometers behind the front line. And it was a huge strike with the Uragan rocket launcher. The huge one, 300 millimeters, I think, the caliber of that. It was de- the base was destroyed. So they were stationed at the local stadium. And it was like a race completely to the ground with the Ukrainian strike. So I talked to the Special Operation Forces servicemen and to the person who was coordinating the group of five people on the ground, locals, civilians, who were trying to gather information piece by piece, then combined as a puzzle and to send it to they so they give it to their kind of supervisor I've been talking to and he sends it already to his contact in the Ukrainian military. So they managed, they checked everything, the Ukrainian military, and they struck the facility and the estimates from the Russian proxy emergency services and the morgues and the medical stuff from 50 to 250 elite Wagner troops being killed on site at the at the moment of the strike. So it, it was a nice story in terms of pages and republishing it. But most of that, it was another proof that Ukrainians who stayed over there, they are still waiting for the Ukrainian flag to, to come back home. Because Russian propaganda tries to portray people who who has been living there and especially in those parts of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast which are under Russian occupation for almost 10 years a decade already Russian propaganda is like constantly saying they are Russians all of those who stayed they are Russians and Russian propaganda works inside Ukraine claiming and try to convince people to believe in that those who stayed there not Ukrainians they are enemies of Ukrainians. They are, we call them Zhduni. The waiters. I yeah, waiters, yeah. exactly. The, those who wait. But every strike is proven opposite. That the Ukrainians are living there and still some of them, they manage to be so brave to talk to Ukrainian forces. Again, without any benefits for them. Only their benefit is the Russian facility, ammunition depot, depot, arsenal, hardware station, whatever, is being hit. That's it. When you get the chance to go back to Donetsk, maybe in the future, after everything, what's the first thing you'd want to do in the city where you're from? What would you go to see? I go home. If if you go home. Yeah, if if the home is survive, I go home to bring back here to Kiev my library. I love to read, and this is my pleasure time for myself, yeah. Of course, I will go to see the sites, and I will go there as soon as Ukrainian army is liberated. I will just rush there with my colleagues to report on there, because like when these territory will be liberated, much more stories will be able to to be told. When we know the stories from Bucha, Irpin, and the other Izum, for example, places which were under Russian occupation for a couple of months only. And we know we saw everybody, the whole world. So all of those horrifying pictures of the mass graves executed people with a tight hand behind their backs. It's nothing new for the Russian army, but still. Rapes, deportations, 
lootings, extrajudicial killings. It's only within two months. Sometimes places that has be, had been liberated after uh, six months of the full-scale invasion and the Russian occupation, more horrifying scenes are unfolding. And so they're visible to the whole world, what the Russia does over there. Imagine what they did for the 10 years. They could, within these 10 years, to do anything they want, what, which they do, basically. But they could erase all the traces of their atrocities they already committed, like a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago. A lot of people went missing still, and the Ukrainian government doesn't know how many of them, so they count in some way, but still... All the numbers will never be counted, definitely. All the dead people will never be counted. All the wounded people will never be counted. But still, we need to go to the numbers as closer to the truth as much as we can. And going and reporting there. So when Donetsk is liberated, I will go my home, of course. I will meet some of my friends who stay there. We have a saying in Ukraine that the place of the power meaning that it's the place where you can be relaxed, where you can be calm, where you can feel yourself so, so good. It could be a home, but for me, there are several places in Donetsk. So I would go definitely there. I would walk, I would just see. But everybody who has been there within these 10 years, every single person says that when you go there, you're so disappointed. You will be so disappointed because it's a different city already. It's just different. And it's it feels like it's not yours. But I'm sure if or when Ukraine liberate Donetsk and the surroundings area, so it's a huge agglomeration. Donetsk Oblast was the highest populated region in Ukraine. And in Donetsk and around, it, there is about 4 million people who live in before 2014. So those places of power are just to try to feel the sense again of because I left the city so quick, I didn't realize I'm living for so long. And I remember the last hours I spent in Donetsk. I try to frame the things I see to remember the sense and the picture. It's still with me, but it's, you know, it's becoming blurred because it's so 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 long time left i imagine sometimes going there of course and i walk through the google street view over there i've watched the videos of the russian propaganda for example because only that kind of videos are uh, or the people they are filming something and complaining and they are still ukrainians because they complain russians they don't complain mostly but ukrainians even those who support occupation they don't call it occupation, of course. They still complain because they know that they could complain while they were living in Ukraine. They could stand up for their rights, even it, if it were something small, not the, like democracy, for example. Yeah, it was like maybe repairing of their pipes in their basement, for example. Yeah, right now they try to complain, but nothing is happening. I see them writing the notes to the local government, uh, Russian-installed government, of course, but nothing is happening. They still complain. They, oh, and the buses over there. They, I forgot to tell you the situation with the buses. As since the male population being conscripted, some of them left, some of them 
sent to the front lines, being killed in action, fighting against Ukraine, their own country. Some of the bus routes, they've been cancelled. And people need to walk kilometers, sometimes more, to the other place they, where they can get the bus or trolley bus or whatever. They transport the public transportation and they go to their offices to keep on working. And it's also a big problem. So, and every year, Donetsk or other places under uh, occupation, they become worse and worse and worse. It's maybe hard to understand from abroad, from London or from Washington, Brussels, or even Warsaw, from sometimes from even from Kiev. Uh, it's hard to understand. But when you know the city, when you know every corner of that, you see how it's in a bad way. And it's a, it's a sad pictures, but I'm used to that already, so no problem. Is there anything, Alessandro, we haven't said that you think is important to mention our listeners before we finish? Yes, of course. With the UK and the British government need to do more, convince their allies, because they have a powerful voice to help Ukrainians more with weapons, with the advocacy, with the sanctions against Russia with the visas for Ukrainian refugees, and recently it was prolonged, but those who are still now coming because some of the people, they only right now managed to escape those territories. And one of my sources, who actually among those who spent months locked in their apartments, self-locked kind of, his cousin lives in UK for years already, and he applied for the guest visa or whatever i don't know what exactly and he was refused so he he went to portugal and he he applied for the refugee status over there with the visas for ukrainian refugees with the access them to the welfare or something but mostly for the weapons money and advocacy against russia because you know if ukraine will fail to be honest and there's a still a huge chance of that and for the last several months, the, these chances is becoming more fat and fat. As we say here, the bigger chance of Ukraine failing the war and losing the war. If so happens, let's just pretend. Russians and the Kremlin and Putin and whoever will be next over there will grab Ukrainians on the streets of Kiev, Dnipro, Lviv, wherever you name the city. In every single settlement of this country, a huge country, the biggest country in Europe, they will send these people forcibly to fight against you. Like they sent Donetsk natives and Luhansk natives and Crimean natives to fight against Ukraine, starting from 2014 and en masse starting from uh, February 2022. It will happen. It's not only Ukrainians saying that, but now more and more people there, we say, wake up, they realize, maybe the Germany realized finally, that the Poland, with their new government and the uh, Radek Sikorsky, the foreign minister, not the guy with the best reputation, I would say, but he says the same thing, that Russians will send Ukrainians to fight against Poland, against Lithuania, and as UK is a NATO country, you have Article 5, and you will be obliged to defend all of those countries. If not, you screwed more. And the, all the order, I would say, and the security situation in Europe will be 
falling like a house of cards and the Ukrainian victory or something kind of victory over Russia in this war will straighten European defense for years to come, maybe decades to come, if Russia will be deterred for real, others like China will know that the allies are so strong that the allies can help any country to repel any aggression from the dictatorship, from the uh, autocracies. And uh, spending your money of your taxpayers is a better thing than spending the lives of your beloved ones, of your friends, people on the streets. And recently the UK UK's government said that they are not ready for the recruitment or for the conscription, sorry. Russia is ready always. Russia has a limitless source of people within Russia and within the occupied territories. And the more land Russia grabs in Ukraine, the more people it will send to fight against you guys. So more help to Ukraine, that's the main thing. Alexandra, thank you so much for your time. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To support our work and to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, please subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just a pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our foreign affairs newsletter, bringing stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We also do the same thing for other breaking international stories. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, please do refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app and leave us a review as it helps others find the show. Please also share it with those who may not be aware we exist. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do continue to read every message. You can also contact us directly on X, formerly known as Twitter. You can find our handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and Georgia Cohn. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.